0: We see this, um, what the ways in which, again, racism becomes really embedded into the brick and mortar of our cities. Welcome to
1: Drexel's 10,000 Hours podcast. Our goal is to mine the stories behind our region's innovators, inventors, and thought creators. We'll be talking to experts in subjects from fashion to neuroscience to find out what lies behind the passion for their work, the inspiration for their ideas, and the motivation for their creativity. I'm your host, Maurice Baynard. Sherelle Barber is an assistant research professor at Drexel University's Dornsife School of Public Health. Her specialties are epidemiology and biostatistics. Sherelle's work focuses on the intersection of place, race, and health, and examines how structural racism shapes the health of various populations. So tell me about um, the place that you grew up and where it was and what kind of community it was.
0: Yeah. So I grew up in eastern North Carolina. And for folks who are familiar with North Carolina, it's, you know, sort of near the coast. Um, But it's 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 in in, especially the northeast is kind of considered like the black belt. And you have a, you know, uh, a series of rural towns, rural and mid-sized towns in that area. So um And, um, yeah, so it's, you know, a town, a small town. Uh, Goldsboro uh, is where my family is. There's an Air Force base there, but outside of the Air Force base, there's not much, right? Um, And so you, you know, kind of have this, Small town vibe um, with um, where, you know, you can go from my house to my dad's church and, you know, see cotton fields and tobacco and soybeans in the middle. Right. But you do have a mall and you do have, (laughs) you know, you have other things that kind of, you know, make it a little bit uh, more, quote unquote, urban uh, than some of the other, the outlying towns.
1: Were there things about growing up in that community Mm -hmm. that sort of informed either really explicitly or snuck up on you right. and informed what you ended up doing as a professor as
0: a professor. yeah so um, I'll say like you like I, you, I said before my dad's a pastor small church in north uh, in, in Goldsboro um, but his orientation towards uh, preaching and faith uh, was very much very public and so he talks a lot about bringing uh, kind of the Bible into the public square meaning that we can't live just b- within the four walls of a church that our faith should inform how we treat treat others, but not just in a charitable way, more so in a justice and a liberation kind of way, right? And so, you know, the scripture in Micah that says to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, right? That means that the work that we do um, and, the, and even the policies that we pass as a, as, as a society, they need to be aligned with the things that are gonna um, uh, make uh, more equitable uh, conditions for everyone. Um, you know, he was, he's definitely um, someone who looked to folks like Dr. King, right? And his, you know, influence um, is very heavy in his preaching. Um, and just, again, thinking about the ways in which our faith informs our practice as citizens and as a collective, um, and so was rooted in that, Um as a growing up, and my family really is kind of like an activist family <laughs> uh, where um we've really uh found various ways, each of us, myself, my siblings, found different ways to live that faith out uh, in a way that is is really, again, about justice. And I saw uh, Bernice King on Twitter. She said, you know, justice is just love in action, right? It's that communal love in action. So that, I mean, when I think about, like, you know, what my father's preaching, my mom being a nurse and supporting that work and all that, it really was this idea of how do I, as a human being, right, Given my Christian faith, but even you know, just as a human being, how do I live out live my life in such a way that has a lens towards the least of these, mm. a lens towards those who've been made, <clears throat> uh, who've been oppressed, um, and Black folks <laughs> in particular um, have been in, in for so long. So, so again, so take that and then position that in the context of Eastern North Carolina. Again, highest proportion of Blacks, highest rates of poverty. Um, towns that don't lack industry, et cetera. You know all of, and and the policies that have created that, and that really informed how I thought about health. Um, really, health in context because you can't think about health without take, thinking about those broad the broader context. And so, um, yeah. <laughs>
1: So were you an activist kid? Were you really empathetic as a teenager in high school right, Were you doing yeah. those kinds of things?
0: I mean, I did things. I was involved in the NAACP as a as a kid, um but when, and then when I again seeing my dad, you know, we would <laughs> my dad would have press conferences about different issues like education or um, you know, various things and uh, we were there. We were at the press conferences, right we, the and sometimes we were the only ones at the press conferences. But I saw, you know, the ways in which he used his voice to mm-hmm. really shed a light and amplify the issues that affected, you know, you know, impoverished communities, black communities, etc. And I think, again, all, me and my siblings are five of us—I uh, think that got ingrained in all of us in different ways. And so then I went on to undergrad um, at a, at the at, at, you go? at Bennett College, uh, Bennett College for Women. It's a it's, it's one of of two historically black colleges for women. So you're yeah. a Bennett Bell. Yeah, I'm a Bennett Bell. You're a freshman. I'm a freshman. What's your major? I was a biology major. <laughs> interestingly enough, right? So right. I, I was.
1: <laughs> so I mean, was there something that you loved about biology, or did, were you
0: pre-med, or what was? Yeah. Your so when I was a, I came on. So from five, from the time I was five, I was going to be a doctor. I was, you know, I was going to be a doctor. That was the, you know, so we did you know to what? Be kind? A doctor. I didn't know. Just I just knew a, I wanted uh, to be a doctor. In a, right, somebody in a white somebody. exactly. So a smart kid. You know, valedictorian for my high school class. Um, always smart. Always good grades. So you know, you go. You, be, you you're a doctor, right? I also like helping people. But then I found out I wasn't too fond of blood and that kind of. Wow, <laughs> that took you out. <laughs> so,
1: not so much with the blood. Oh, right. So how do you change? Yeah,
0: so biology major, so a couple of things. Biology major, but I was also had been, as a freshman, and then into my sophomore year, started getting involved um, more on campus, um, helped to organize a march to the polls. We had this slogan that uh, Dr. Alma Adams, who's currently in this, the House of Representatives, she would say, v- Bennett Bells are voting bells. And so under that mantra, we marched to the polls. Um, and I knew, like, I'm this biology major, but I was like, I got to connect this stuff. I got to, like, what's happening politically, what's happening in communities, like, how do I connect the dot? Now, being a medical doctor could be good. You know, I could see individual patients but it like as I began to evolve right I began to say "Eh, there's a little bit of a disconnect in Mm -hmm. medicine just pure medicine that I want to kind of think more broadly and so sophomore year summer I had the opportunity to um Go to a summer program at Harvard, uh, summer program of, uh, quantitative sciences, um, but it was there that I found, discovered, fell in love with public health and what it did for me. It is it gave me the opportunity to marry the this kind of um, strong desire to be social social uh, strong um, core value of social justice with my love of science, with my love of of, of thinking about health, right, of thinking about, but not just the the health of individuals, the health mm-hmm. of populations. And um, it was, you know, there at that is at that program that I got um, introduced to a wide range of literature that I had never seen before. Um, you know, uh, black uh, epidemiologists who, who were doing this work talking about health disparities in a very different way, not just what black folks aren't eating, that they're not getting exercise, but there's these larger societal issues that might actually be influencing our health. And how can we think about um, that and, and help and address those things and not just, it's just individual behavior. It's just individual um, individuals aren't doing the things that they need to do. So,
1: so I'd love to dig deep on what those disparities are, right? Um, Let's start by getting some common definitions. So, so, when you go to a cocktail party and go epidemiologist (laughs) and people's eyes glaze over, how do you you explain it?
0: I just say it's it's about the health and populations, right? I say, I talk about, you know, the fact that, you know, when you see statistics that, you know, the, you know, um, black women, for example, have four times uh, the maternal uh, mortality rate uh, than white women, that's an epidemiologic statistic or that's a statistic that we know because of epidemiologic data. So it's really looking at the health of population and also looking for me as a social epidemiologist, looking at those drivers, those contextual societal systemic drivers of these patterns of health that we see within populations.
1: So your professional life uh, then sort of centers on this these ideas, these intersections of race and place mm-hmm. and health mm-hmm. So what have you found? Yeah um, what are the what are the kinds of takeaways that most people, find surprising, right? and what should the average person know about how those things interact with one another?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny because I started off saying place, race, and health, and I've been now very explicit with saying racism, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's racism that has shaped the places where people live and then leads to subsequent health inequity. So my work has been, um, some of my work is I've been primarily based in two areas. Mm -hmm. Um, One is in Jackson, Mississippi. So again, I felt you know, doing my work in the South and it being based in the South was very essential to me. Um, and being able to sh- to really use the research that I do to shift the narrative, right, to look at these broader issues was very essential. So I've been using work from the Jackson Heart Study. Um, it's actually a study of African-Americans based in Jackson, Mississippi, the Deep South. Um, and I've done a series of studies that have looked at seg- um, neighborhood disadvantage, mm-hmm. segregation, and we've, again, seen these patterns where you live in neighborhoods that have higher poverty, higher unemployment, higher um, uh, lower, you know, um, uh, median household incomes, etc. You see higher rates of allostatic load, which is. Um, higher levels of allostatic load, which is just a marker of kind of chronic stress. Um, We see higher rates of cardiovascular disease. We see higher rates of stroke um, in these neighborhoods that have a higher disadvantage. We also, um, also looking at kind of explicitly racial residential segregation, also see these similar patterns where you see higher rates of cardiovascular disease, higher rates of um, markers of cardiovascular health um, in this population of blacks, right? um, and, and, and for me, especially looking within a population of Blacks to say, if, if we, it, it goes beyond race, to the structure of the of racism and, and neighborhood and segregation to say if you change the context in which people live you can actually change their ho- outcomes which counters some of the like biological determinism of racial inequality so there's right. a whole you know a uh, h- host of literature that thinks that oh well the, the differences we see for blacks versus whites is genetic right but if i'm looking at a fully black population and i see these variations depending on where people live that's not genetics that's the mm-hmm. structure that's the that's the racism that has created these conditions um, that then lead to these poor health outcomes. So that's Jackson. Um, and then in 2016, I began looking at this work in Brazil, which, I again, seeing Brazil being the actually the, the country with the um, largest African population outside of Africa, Afro descendant population outside of the continent of Africa. It has 50% of their population is Afro-descendant, um, has a legacy of slavery that predated American uh, US-based slavery and also didn't end until three years after um, uh, US-based slavery, and has this, a really similar system of racism um, and oppression in that country. And so again, looking at where people live, the segregated neighborhood environments, and outcomes like diabetes, hypertension, obesity, um, we see these same patterns of where people live mattering for their health, which has implications for how we understand racial health inequalities in that context. So
1: other than the genetic uh, pushback, I I can see a novice saying, well, isn't that just really about lifestyle? Certain people live a certain way, they live sedentarily, Mm -hmm. they eat bad foods, and so they had uh, poor um, health outcomes. And if they just took up yoga or maybe... (laughs) Bought a pair of running shoes. And, yeah, and yeah. Stop eating ribs; they'd be better off.
0: Oh, that's the that is the that ha, that was when I entered into when I became aware of public health in 2005. That was the predominant narrative, and it still exists. Um, but what you have to say, ask. Then you have to take it this the next step. Think about where people live. Think about do they ha- what access to healthy foods, affordable foods do they have. Um, You got to think about the infrastructure um, within their neighborhoods that might um, I preclude them from engaging in certain healthy physical activities. You have to think about just the fact that some folks in these neighborhoods are, are working one, two, three jobs, and their time is limited, and they're exhausted when they get home, and they have all these other responsibilities. So thinking about you know let me go to the gym if they can afford a gym membership is probably the least of their worries. And so it go. So again, you go, you get away from this. Let's blame the victim because that's really what that is. To let's look at the context and the structures that have been created that are not conducive to health.
1: So, we've spent a lot of time sort of deconstructing the problems mm-hmm. and sort of understanding the interaction between these. So, in what way does your work sort of <clears throat> inform solutions? Yeah. Like, you know, what are some of the answers to some of these problems? Wow,
0: that's a big <laughs> that's yeah. a tough question. So, one so I will say that part of the reason I engaged in the kind of social epidemiologic aspect of the work is there was still there sometimes still is a need to change shift narrative because mm-hmm. you got to change the story about why health inequalities exist before people will even act right so there's there's it's it's getting better especially in the U.S. where you know some public health departments are declaring racism as a public health crisis mm-hmm. right. Ten years ago that wasn't the case, right so this epidemiologic research that we've been doing, and again not myself but you know my colleagues and friends across the country to just demonstrate that these structural factors are influencing health was very in, in um, instrumental in just ch- shifting the narrative right we had to first say it's not just this lifestyle stuff, it's not genetics, it's racism and it can, if we we got to shift the narrative now. When you then say, let's step back and say, well, racism is this system, right? Mm. And we've created this system Mm. since, you know, the first enslaved individuals who came to this country, black folks who came to this country, we've created a system. What are the ways that we can begin to examine the policies and the practices that have created the system so then we can begin to dismantle it, right? Right. Yeah, this
1: brings up the issue of racism, which we've been bantering around as if everybody knows what racism is. Mm -hmm. And I think people understand it if you go, I don't like you because you're different in this way, this specific way, this specific (coughs) ethnic way. Mm -hmm. But that's not what you're... what you're really getting at. Right,
0: what I'm really getting at is uh, Dr. Kamara Jones, who's a physician epidemiologist, and she was really a pioneer in this area of racism and health. She was talking about this in the 90s when everybody thought she was crazy and they were like, go sit down somewhere. Now everybody's talking about racism, but she defines it like this. She says, it's a system, right? So it gets us away from interpersonal, this like, I don't like you, you don't like me, of structuring opportunity and assigning value Based, based on our social interpretation of what people call race, right? And so that does three things. It, it, it disadvantages some individuals and communities. It also provides an advantage to some communities and individuals. And then the final thing I think is really critical is that it saps the, the strength of the entire society hmm. um, through the waste of human resources. The fact that we don't invest in certain folks because of their, their skin color, because they're yeah. black, or they're hispan, or they're Latino, or, or whatever, disproportionately or disproportionate
1: in one group because exactly. of this skin
0: color, exactly means we're we're actually doing a disservice to our whole society, mm-hmm. right? And so the fact that we, and and you can see multiple systems, education, in housing and neighborhoods and segregation criminal justice, all of these systems that are really interlocking and reinforce one another have created the conditions that make health really hard for certain populations. right? And so when I talk about racism, I'm talking about the ways in which it's been embedded in the very way we we operate as a society, locally, statewide, and federally. Um, and that's where we have to get, and that's where we have to move. We have to move to be thinking about how do we address the systems of, uh, of, 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 uh, of systems that have continued. And those systems um, are set up on power and resources. Mm. So we're not just talking about the lack of resources, we're talking about the ways in which political and economic, or political power has also been suppressed in these communities
1: so i'm really interested in um talking about philadelphia mm-hmm. right we're here in philadelphia yeah. your work is currently in philadelphia yeah. how does um all that you've done mm-hmm. is, especially in you know, like jackson and mm-hmm. and, and and in Brazil, how does it inform um, what you see here? Yeah. What do you see here? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. No, I think it's really important. So there's this report that's really nicer. Well, not nice. <laughs> it's actually kind right. of depressing report. Right. But uh, the close to home report, hmm. which was done in conjunction with the Urban Health Collaborative, which is based here at Drexel, and the Philadelphia Health Department. And what the close to home report did was it divided uh, Philadelphia into its neighborhoods, right? Um, and looked at um, different indicators or markers of health, including life expectancy, um, by neighborhood, and what it found was that there are these huge, striking inequalities, um, upwards of 15-year differences in life expectancy in different neighborhoods across the city of Philadelphia. That's Fifteen, you can live in one neighborhood and lived, and your life expectancy be sixty nine, mm. um, or or sixty, and then in another eighty two <laughs> years, life expectancy, and so that this report has really made visible these striking inequities that we know are the result, again, of the systems and the structures that have created, you know, kind of the the segregated neighborhoods that we we see, the disinvestment that has happened over decades. Um, And, you know, and I did a class, um, I'm actually currently teaching a class, an um, online class called Urban Inequalities in Health, where I went to different neighborhoods in Philly. I was in North Philadelphia, I was in West Philadelphia. Um, And to be reminded of how strikingly different these neighborhoods are from Center City, from, you know, certain parts of University City, as uh, you know, as well, um, you know, it, it just is a reminder that there has been a lack of investment in certain communities across the city of Philadelphia. Um, and this has been persistent, and we see it show up in neighborhoods, we see it show up in the educational system, we see it show up in criminal justice, all of these things, these interlocking things that create these very very different living conditions for individuals and we see that again and life expectancy is one of the like you know the the markers right if you if you want to get at like what's the real health of this population and so, so to see those 15 upwards of 15 years difference um, i think is very telling of the inequalities that exist in the city
1: what's your hope for the future what do you hope students who Take a course of yours. Yeah. Take away and do in the world.
0: Yeah. So I, you know, I hope that we, as a society, uh, we learn or we, you know, get a better. What I've been calling um, in lectures that I've been giving over the last few months is that we have a radical imagination, and what I mean by that is that because we've we've actually we've literally created these systems, that means we can recreate them. And if we all collectively get the political will to just say, um, you know, we can't discard certain communities because that's what we've in essence done. And here in Philadelphia, we've said, oh, North Philly doesn't matter. West Philly doesn't matter. That's what we've done, whether or not we want to admit it or not. And that's what we've done, not just as individuals, but as collective. So can we have an imagination that says it's not okay for certain communities to be disinvested, for certain communities not to thrive, for certain communities to literally have to struggle day in and day out literally just to survive. That's not okay. As a collective, can we have that imagination? And that really uh, really requires us to see the humanity in everyone else, to see that we're all inextricably linked um, and so what I hope that my work does and students who take my class is that they um, they reimagine what this world looks like. And then they fight um, and organize and, and act collectively to try to make a difference and to try to change the world. Dr. Sherelle Barber, thank,
1: thank you. you for being in the 10,000 Hours. Thank you. Drexel's 10,000 Hour Podcast is hosted by me, Maurice Baynard. Our producers are Sean Fitzpatrick and Nathan Barrett.
0: Drexel's 10,000 Hours Podcast is powered by Drexel University Online.